I'm Austin, and this is the Solana Podcast. This is the third and final episode of Live Talks in Breakpoint, which took place in Lisbon earlier this month. We're doing something a bit different today. This episode is a compilation of three short talks. These three conversations give a sense of the range of thought in and around Solana. It's easy to think of Solana as a piece of technology, a blockchain, an open source software package, but it's just as much a cultural movement. The first talk, Web3 School in Sierra Leone, explores recent efforts to bring Web3 and the Solana network to students in West Africa. The second, An Artist and a Monkey Go to Washington, describes firsthand experiences explaining NFTs to politicians and regulators in DC. The third, How Compression Will Decimate Network Costs on Solana, discusses exactly that. The compression talk gets a little technical, but even if you have no idea what a Merkle tree is, I think you'll appreciate the high-level potential of what this technology can bring to NFTs and digital assets on Solana. And you should learn about Merkle trees. They're pretty cool. As always, our email is podcast at solana.org. Please send us your thoughts, comments, and topics you'd like us to dive into next year. Let's jump right in. So my name is Colin. I work on the developer relations team at Solana Foundation. And um, yeah, there's a side project that I've been working on, which is a Web3 school in Sierra Leone. So when I say Web3 school, I actually mean like an in-person, physical, in-real-life school in Sierra Leone. And Sierra Leone is a relatively small country in West Africa. It's on the coast, it's got beautiful beaches, very mountainous, it's a, it's a great place. So in Sierra Leone, I founded a nonprofit organization called Christex Foundation. And the aim of this foundation is to actually like lead Sierra Leone through a blockchain, but more specifically, a Solana transformation. It just so happens that the first step of this transformation is education. And it's education from a technical perspective in terms of where we will train people on how to develop on Solana, but also from a non-technical perspective where we actually just introduce what blockchain is, what the use cases are, and kind of like the um, issues that it's able to solve locally in Sierra Leone. So the question you might have is, why are you building a physical school? Why isn't this like an online community somewhere? Well, for you to kind of understand why, you'd have to understand what the level or the state of infrastructure is like in Sierra Leone. So believe it or not, in 2022, there isn't like an area or region in Sierra Leone that would have 24 hours of electricity. Um, not only that, internet is something that is prohibitively expensive. If you ever want to feel sorry for me, after the talk, ask me how much I pay for a 10 megabit connection at my house in Sierra Leone. I'm sure you'll be surprised. So with things like that, having an online school, we just don't really have the infrastructure to actually power that in Sierra Leone. So we really needed to have like the physical component. And um, almost like outside of that, I think people are not smart or intelligent just based on like where they're born or what region they find themselves in. I think some of the differences is just having the access to resources, the correct resources, and actually like an enabling environment and actually have the equipment to participate in this particular network. So kind of like, how did this all start? It actually started off with a simple tweet. So this was me back when I was on holiday in Sierra Leone last year, December. And I was speaking to different people in the country, speaking to software engineers to actually find out the issues that they were having locally. And more often than not, what I heard was about having like lack of opportunities in terms of these individuals would go through, let's say, university or some kind of educational program, 
train themselves up, get some skills, but at the end of it, there is zero opportunity. There's like no opportunity for them to work in the field that they studied in. Outside of that, if they were one of the ones to be fortunate enough to actually find um, a position, the opportunity or like how much they will actually earn is very, very low. So what you find in Sierra Leone in terms of the minimum wage is actually very close to the average wage in Sierra Leone, which is ranging from about $40 to $60 a month. That's how much somebody has to live on in terms of food, rent, and just kind of like you can just imagine the general living expenses. And for somebody who is, let's say, a senior software engineer or an engineer in Sierra Leone that has three to five years of experience, they'll be very fortunate to even earn a salary of like $300 a month. So this kind of opportunity is kind of what actually struck a chord with me because it actually made me realize that this is why I was actually interested in blockchain technology in the first place. In terms of for sure, it's going to improve like the efficiencies that we have in traditional systems. People are going to have like new experiences with Web3. But there's a whole region and a whole set of people who can actually benefit from this technology if we we're just to embrace it. And it kind of made me think that it actually gives not just Sierra Leone, but Africa as a whole and emerging markets an opportunity to actually leapfrog the existing like traditional systems and traditional technology and actually embrace the technology of the future, which of course is blockchain. And I'm sure most of us in the audience are believers of that. So where are we now? So we thankfully received a grant from the Solana Foundation that actually allows us to um, complete our phase one. So what you're seeing is um, a construction that we started in the middle of April. And since then, we were able to build the purpose-built like Solana facility in Sierra Leone where the education is going to happen. We also did this in partnership with the University of Sierra Leone because the facility that we built is actually on campus in the university. So yeah, construction started in April and in about six to seven months, this is what we're able to accomplish. And by the time I get back in Sierra Leone, by the end of this week, phase one will actually be complete so we can actually start doing the training on site. And one of the cool things about this facility is actually it allows us to have like um, a physical, like in real life experience of Solana. So kind of think of Solana Spaces before Solana Spaces was actually a thing. Um, so we can kind of like educate people from a non-technical perspective in terms of just by them coming onto the campus, they'll be able to experience Solana in real life. So for the past two months, I've actually been taking the students teaching uh, Solana and Solana development at my home in Sierra Leone. Because the construction wasn't complete, um, the students were like very energetic and passionate to start. So I opened up my home to actually start teaching them like two to three times a week for the past two months. Um, so now that the facility is complete, we can begin to like do that and move it on site. So what's actually interesting is like we actually started off with about 100 students and this is from the university kind of like nominating people that they think will be great or well advanced and also just purely by word of mouth. And the idea is, is to actually bring this number down to probably around 12 to 24 where we can actually focus for this first two cohorts in terms of like forming like strong ecosystem projects in Sierra Leone. Um, so in terms of like where do we go from here? The first thing is actually to take um, students through the program. So as mentioned, the first step will be taking them from zero to actually being able to like complete bounties in the Solana ecosystem. So think of like the bounties you'll find on um, products like superteam.earn. And actually, um, 
just actually getting to that level will actually be a huge national success in terms of, again, as I was mentioning, the average uh, wage in Sierra Leone is about $60. Them completing like one of the simplest bounties on Super Team is probably like three, four, or even five X their current earnings. The second step from that is actually taking them from being able to complete bounties in the ecosystem to actually being hireable by um, different ecosystem projects around the world. And going further from that, it's not just stopping at being hired, but as I mentioned, can we get to the point where actually we're forming strong ecosystem projects that are both like birthed and founded in Sierra Leone? Um, the second step will be partnership with teams in the ecosystem. So Solana kind of like optimizes for it being composable. So with that, it'll be very interesting to work with different ecosystem partners to kind of understand the protocols that you're working on and actually how we can benefit from it in Sierra Leone in terms of like building on top of it and even to like a large extent contributing back to the protocol in a way that will enable us to solve the challenges that we have locally. And of course, funding. This is funding for future phases in terms of not only improving the facilities that we have on site, but also begin to like focus on different initiatives that we have. It's like one of the obvious cases is just like payments and remittances, especially in Sierra Leone and the region as a whole. Uh, finally, what we have is um, different artworks that were created by local artists in Sierra Leone. So these are artists that we actually onboarded and educated in terms of like what an NFT is. And we were able to like assist them in um, not only learning about what an NFT is, but actually converting the artwork that they have into NFTs. And we worked with our friends from Exchange Art to actually do a sale of these pieces of artworks. So each, for each artwork, there are 20 editions. And actually, the sale of just one of these artworks will sponsor a student in the program for a period of like three to six months and also allows us to kind of supply the basics in terms of having like tables, desks, and chairs and the likes. And I guess one thing that I actually forgot to mention right at the start is that this school is actually completely free. So from now until like literally the end of time, the foundation will be open completely for free in terms of as long as you're interested in blockchain and learning to develop on Solana, you can come into the foundation, go through the program and learn Solana development for free. So thank you all for your time. And yeah, hopefully we get to work some capacity in the future. Thank you. It is so good to sit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This has been fantastic. John, I think this is the longest that we're going to actually get to hang out the entirety of Breakpoint. I'm I think so. I think so. So thank you guys for bringing us together. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, we're here to talk about our experience uh, talking to regulators in Washington. Uh, so for anyone who I haven't met before, my name's Nam. I'm out of the Monkey Dow. Uh, we're a collective focused around an NFT project and trying to make sure that the people who are here developing, making the next generation of projects for the next three to five years have as much support as possible. And we do that through a variety of grants, uh, our own initiatives inside of Monkey Ventures, as well as just general support for, for every one of our 2,700 monkeys. I think there's 314 here in Lisbon, so it's been wonderful to see everybody. Um, and if you're not a monkey yet, uh, I'll work on that. <laughs> and yeah, uh, good morning or good afternoon, everybody. My name is John Lay. I'm a proud monkey as well. Um, and yeah, I started my NFT career exactly one year ago. I stayed home from Breakpoint because I simply couldn't afford it. And, uh, you know, I minted my first NFT on November 2nd of 2021. And in that time, I've been able to become the highest grossing artist on Solana, which has been uh, one of my best accomplishments. <laughs>
So why we're kind of going into this panel and what we want to do is me and John are coming at the Washington experience from, from two different angles. I personally wanted to talk with the people who are maybe understanding democracy, but not understanding how a DAO fits into that and explaining that it's a process that they might already be familiar with. All DAOs are at their core is a consensus mechanism for people who are trying to make decisions. And whether that's around a DeFi protocol, whether that's around organizing a party, it's the same level. But where John came in was to explain exactly how useful it was for being an artist inside of Web3 and what value I think you now have that you didn't previously in terms of owning your own craft. Yeah, um, NFTs have been a, a life-changing kind of technology that has enabled me to redefine the relationship between myself, the creator, and the fans um, in a very robust ways. And, you know, going to DC for me was, um, I think, you know, as much as um, what Nam had just said, how how we would kind of show them how the culture that's being built here on NFTs and Web3, I wanted to talk about kind of a smaller scale of the culture of independent art and how it has enabled us to um, really take control of what it is we create and who we give IP to and how much of that IP we can own ourselves rather than allowing um, you know, certain middlemen to over-leverage our desperation as artists for greed. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I think what we can really do is showcase to the people who are currently trying to research and understand regulation around crypto and Web3 in general, um, just how important it is for the people who are making those decisions to be involved in the community. Um, I was at the Mountain Dow organization earlier this year and had the opportunity to talk to Representative John Curtis, and we were discussing why blockchain it doesn't seem to be that big of a focus outside of organizations like the SEC, um, where people really only seem to want to push down on what crypto is and what it can actually organize. And that's from the technology level to the organizations that are building on top of it. And his perspective was, he's a politician trying to represent everyone inside of his constituency. His goal is to figure out the situation inside of the Ukraine, try to get gas under control, do everything that he can around inflation and handle a bunch of political and, and, and civil issues inside of his district. As much as it matters for everybody inside of this room, crypto is not that big of a focus for the people who are making these decisions. And that's largely because what we have been doing and how we've been approaching this is something where we build it off to the side and we hope that users come to it or we hope that we're marketing it enough and we'll worry about regulation and the best way that we can re reach out to it forward. Because a lot of the times I think people in this room and maybe outside of it don't want regulation. That's the whole point behind DeFi. That's uh, right. what we're trying to do in this essentialized metric. There's no allow list to be able to do an action. It's your money, it's your IP, it's your art. You're allowed to own it and distribute it however you want. Totally. And I think uh, one of the things that I found, or I think most of the group found most enlightening was how much, uh, like to understand their focus, like what are staffers as well as members of Congress, what is their area of focus for them to start, um, you know, showing a bit of empathy for what's happening in Web3? Because I think what we're creating here from a day to day is we're creating a lot of shades of gray. And if we, I think one thing that became really clear to me when we first got there is if, if we continue to allow the SEC or the government to 
to lump us into existing policies, existing litigations and, and laws, um, they will not account for the important shades of gray that are being built here. Um, I think at one point, Nam had brought up that if uh, if we continue to go down that road, um, everything we do, whether it's Monkey Dow or me as an independent artist, you know, there, there's this dark sci-fi future of we would have to register every release with the SEC, which is that would be the bottleneck that chokes culture. And, you know, that's when my perspective started to open up on this a lot more. Yeah. Um, we had a really good conversation uh, talking to the Department of Commerce, yeah. uh, discussing with people around. They didn't understand where DeFi ended and physical products would begin. Um, so one of the traders there was showing up is like, if I'm trading in physical gold at some point, even if I'm using things on chain, uh, I, I can eventually get that back. And he doesn't see that with a token like Samo, justifiable. I'm not able to buy a dog with it yet, I think. At, at some <laughs> right. point, I still need uh, a little bit more to interact with it. But for 99% of people who are actually dealing with these primitives and building on top of it, you are never dealing with orange juice futures by buying a thousand liters at a time. You are never trading lean hogs and making sure that you have to ship pigs across the world. <laughs> yes. the, these things already exist, but the way that we're currently approaching it in the eyes of the regulators is that we are intentionally obfuscating things and making it a lot more difficult for them to understand, justifiably, because yeah, crypto hasn't been well received by regulators. Sure, yeah, and, and uh, you know it's not completely unfair. You know, we we've all seen um, some of the best parts about crypto and NFTs and Web three, and we've seen some of the bad parts. And um, you know, I think the thing that like one of one of the other things that really stood out to me was that. In most of these panels, in all of these panels, we were met with curiosity over judgment and they were willing to listen. And I think for me, at some point, I, I, we started to get into these one-on-one -on -one conversations and there were a lot of questions of like, well, what happens when this happens or another thing happens? And I think my answer started to become that, you know, we also don't exactly know the answers and the solutions to every shade of gray, but I think the difference is um, from their perspective, they're outside looking in and we're on the ground floor. We're figuring out day to day, we're creating the standard. And that's when it became clear to me that like, you know, being early, um, one thing I didn't realize when I was early was being early means we have this ability to steer the conversation. We can shift the narrative and we can actually um, set a new standard that the future generations will follow and hopefully will create things that the future generations won't have to exactly struggle with the same adversities we have dealt with, whether it is a project like Monkey Dow or me being an independent artist. Yeah, I, I think it's very easy to sit back and wait and decide that we don't need to engage with it. You can go through the cypherpunk mentality of trying to say that you're reinventing finance, you burn everything down, and then you build it back up. Um, and that's great until some senator's kid gets rugged by an NFT project that, that doesn't end up working out. And then now we're trying to make regulation in a reactionary way. And that's only ever going to go negatively. When people are coming up and being told this is an issue rather than this is an opportunity, yep. it makes it a lot more difficult for the regulators who have a million other things on their plate and are focusing on making sure that they are compliant inside of their own standards, which already don't make sense, but they're, they're trying to negotiate the way around laws that are already existing. Yeah. When we do outreach, when organizations like Proof put out these reports, uh, when you're trying to steer the conversation around, these are people that we want to be involved with. These are the people who have the power to make these situations better. Yeah. It, it is coming from a place of curiosity because so much of this is 
people who have like an hour a week and yeah. are trying to catch up on everything that exists on crypto Twitter and understanding what's going on in the latest DeFi releases and what is this third validator client and how do I make sure that all of these organizations are acting positively or at least not directly competing with each other. There's on a massive amount of innate knowledge that you already have to have in order to understand like what a NFT DAO would look like or right. what a one-of-one -one piece of art on exchange looks like versus an edition versus the physical print of these and how IP rights and all of these things go into it. And I think we've all probably spent enough time learning over the past years where we forget what it's like to be experiencing these for things for the first time. And so yeah. I, I had one of the best conversations was talking to someone who, specifically for Solana, was wondering how the chain performed when the token price itself went down versus when it was going up. Right. Uh, and these are people who are not wrong in their questions. They're just missing a massive frame of reference, which is where everyone in these rooms and at these conversations can start to help make sure that we have positive things going forward in the space. Um, so if you have a representative, if you have someone who is maybe making negative remarks around crypto in, in your ecosystem, it's very much not a thing of just like, well, they're wrong and they'll figure it out. The Satoshi's quote of, I don't have time to explain it to you, <laughs> that, that was perfect for that time period. And sure. now when we're trying to do things like onboard the next billion users, the title that I think everybody here is using in their presentation, yep. you have to make sure that your grandma who is going to be downloading Solana Pay is, is having some level of understanding of what's actually going on. And you need to treat the people who are making these regulatory decisions in the same way. You have to start from the ground level because the second that we start going into these advanced topics, you just lose them all. Yeah, I mean, sometimes when Nam speaks, I even get I hyperventilated a little <laughs> bit because he's so smart. And like me, I'm just, I understand art, I understand culture, I understand people. And, you know, um, for me, I think, you know, what I, what I loved was, you know, their main concern was consumer protection. So to echo from what Nam was saying is the way we, um, the way we support consumer protection is through education by, by making, the information that we give them digestible so that they can make their own decisions in a way that there's like breathing room into that decision rather than pounding it into their faces with the numbers and the figures. Um, I think, you know, for me, one of the biggest things that happened um, in practice to me after DC was I used to lead the conversation to all my artist friends to onboard them that, oh, you can make a comfortable living with this. We can own what we make. All this stuff. And yes, all that stuff is still very, very true. However, these days, I kind of lead with more of the cultural aspect of that coin rather than the financial aspect, because I truly believe that, you know, the money will follow that culture. And if we go culture first and onboarding these artists and show how we can champion a culture in which we can make things, we can put our hearts into it and we can own it um, or even own it with our communities, I think the whole game changes once that light switch is turned on. Yeah, it's like if you're connected inside of this venue, do you know if you're on a 2.4 gigahertz band or a 5 gigahertz band for your Wi-Fi? You don't know, right? right? You're probably just connected to Wi-Fi and it worked. Yeah. And if we're not at the point there where it's like, we all think that we're technically in the know, but we're not looking into that because we have some level of understanding and obfuscation where we don't need to look into it. Yeah the other people aren't going to care about what chain that they're working on. They're going to care that the DAP that they're being exposed to works and it, and it 
you know, is, is positive experience for them. Yeah. Um, so I think a lot of our evangelists focus too much on things that don't matter to the end consumer. They matter to us as developers and as creators. But in terms of explaining, like, what does it actually mean for you to own your own IP? What does it make for you to own your own brand? How do payment links work directly for the artist or the art that I'm buying and reselling? Um, the social narrative, I think, is a much easier way to integrate with these people who are making these decisions rather than the technical narrative. Yes. Because they're always going to be playing a game of catch-up. The people who are making these choices are never going to have the lead time that we already do. Right, and I think, you know, this is just the basis of storytelling. If you if you ever find yourself in a situation where you're trying to explain a very complex thought or emotion or a feeling, um, and the person that you're talking to so clearly doesn't understand it and it didn't land, the first thing we're going to revert to is telling a story. And I think, you know, to Nam's point, if we if we continue to have these conversations with everybody and we tell them a story in which it's relatable and they can understand it, then when we have that curiosity, then we can start trickle out data and figures and numbers of why this is important on a grander scale. Yeah. Well, I think we've all talked enough and taken up tons of your valuable time. Um, I hope that if you all have any questions around governance or organizations or art or IP or anything, please come find us and, and chat. And if you have the opportunity to be a, a missionary about crypto, make sure you're doing it, telling a good story. Absolutely. And thank you so much for you guys' time and uh, enjoy the rest of the event. Thank you all for coming to our panel. What we've observed in terms of what, uh, in terms of what speakers have talked about on this stage are really uh, orders of magnitude, levels of effort to push this ecosystem into their next evolutionary phase, uh, which is why we're so excited to talk about compression. So I'm Ash, I'm from Metaplex. We're just gonna go down the row for people to introduce themselves, Austin. Hi, I'm Austin. I'm one of the engineers at Metaplex working on compression. Hi, I'm Kanan. I'm the CEO at Stardust. Hey, everyone. I'm Rodri, uh, co-founder at Crashment. Hey, everyone. I'm Vidor. Uh, built blockchains for a few years. Uh, discovered Solana. Started building wallets, explorers, uh, DeFi protocols, focusing on Soulflare wallets right now. Awesome. So what does compression do? Um, well, when we look at the next phase of people minting at scale, to the scale of millions, billions of NFTs, Compression bends the cost curve. So today, costs linearly scale. So if you want to mint 10,000 NFTs, it's 120 soul. With compression, it's three. So you have a 40x savings. If you want to mint a million NFTs, before compression, it was 12,000 soul. With compression, it's five soul. And if you want to mint a billion, the cost is 12 million soul. Uh, Pre-compression, post-compression, it's 500 soul. So I really want to emphasize that because you can actually start to imagine the use cases that pop up when cost is not an extreme gate to actually scale. So the way I want to position some of the conversation here is understanding that you should know we are in a beta phase for this product, which means that we are integrated with some core infrastructure and wallet partners like Soulflare to have a dev-ready experience for you all, but we are fastly pushing uh, to general access to the public, which we'll talk a little through at the end. But Austin, we're here in beta, but can you talk a little bit about the technical journey to get us here? Yeah, the compression project represents a lot of work that the Solana Labs team and the Metaplex Studios team have done together 
you know, very, very smart individuals. Our team was able to work with their team to create a, a new generalized system for compressing any form of account data on Solana. But after that was created and the technical challenges there were solved, we turned to, okay, now let's compress NFTs because that was always the chief goal. But again, it's a generalized system for compressing any data on Solana, which I think is a very key point to bring up. So bring your use case. We had to solve one specific problem, which was that Merkle trees, which just in general are not very easily parallelizable because you have to do one thing right after another. And that's not going to work on a, on a blockchain that can go um, concurrently. And so Jerry Zhao and, and Noah and a lot of the Solana Labs team and the Metaplex team were able to push through this barrier by creating something called the concurrent Merkle tree. That allows us to have, let's say, a, a tree with a billion positions that you can have NFTs in. And if every one of those is owned by one specific person, those operations can happen without waiting on each other. And with the high throughput of Solana, we can now mint and operate at scale with compression. Not only that, but of course it reduces the costs, which also helps bring more use cases on. It helps bring more people into the ecosystem to create a stronger network. That's great. So, Kanan, knowing you're leading Stardust and the job to be done, you know, how do you think about kind of the use case of minting at this scale and kind of sure. what your customers need? Talk a little bit about that. 100%. I'll start uh, quickly with Stardust. Uh, we're a platform that obviously gets blockchain for game developers, so they can manage millions, hopefully billions of players at scale. Fully custodial, uh, minting with API keys and JSON data, rather than sending transactions directly to the blockchain. Uh, many of our customers, mobile, desktop, um, are thinking about scale much past the 10,000 NFTs we've seen to date. Uh, and so we have customers coming to us and saying, how do we put 100 million plus NFTs on Solana for 5 million MAO? Cost is a definite concern for them as they look at their LTVs or lifetime value per user and what NFTs can do for that cost curve. And pre-compression, um, the effect of you know, 30 cents, 40 cents per mint on Solana for anything above 10,000 NFTs made it very difficult for them to monetize with NFTs users that were not full-scale whales. Um, with compression, we can now bring NFTs to millions and billions of people through Solana, you know, through Stardust to our customers in a cost-effective manner that allows them to better monetize their games and better think about use cases on what to do with NFTs for the long term. What, what are some of those use cases that they've come to you with? We see a lot of customers thinking about the crossover between games and DeFi. And when you have you know, resources and UGC-based games, it's very important to create sustainable markets. And I know we're not here to talk about creative royalties, but, you know, with royalties going back to those developers. And so when you have millions of players creating tens of millions, hundreds of millions of items in a UGC-based environment month over month, pricing all comes back to that being on-chain to be able to leverage these great marketplaces we have today and also DeFi products like Orca and more. That's awesome. Rodri, I want to pass it to you. You've really been amazing in onboarding enterprise customers as one aspect of what CrossMint is doing, but talk to me a little bit about what your customers are looking for and how this kind of enables yep. that. Sounds good. Uh, hi, everyone. Super quick intro to CrossMint. We build infrastructure to make NFTs more accessible. 
So you may know us by powering credit card purchases at Magic Eden and some of the other largest uh, marketplaces. But more broadly, we're building infrastructure to enable enterprises to create and distribute NFTs at scale to mainstream audiences as well. Today, there's three challenges for enterprise adoption. The first one is that gas fees are very expensive. Well, now no more. Second one is that most of the audiences of enterprises don't have wallets. They don't know what crypto is. And the third one is if an enterprise wants to create an NFT, they have to create a crypto wallet. They have to decide who gets to store those keys within the enterprise. And there's a lot of security and auditing considerations that makes it such that starting a project is extremely inefficient and takes often months to go to market and everyone is reinventing the wheel. So today we're launching a new product uh, for minting for enterprises that enables them to create NFTs and send them to anyone that anyone can be a wallet address or an email address. Some examples of how enterprises are using or have been using in our beta, the minting API are Solana Spaces, the physical retailer is dropping every week a weekly newsletter in the form of an NFT. That's a news case that before with 40 cents per NFT was absolutely impossible or unthinkable, but now with just a few cents uh, e-totalis. Another client of us called Heng, they're building NFT-based loyalty programs for some of the leading brands and, and retailers in the world, and they're leveraging the API to be able to distribute those NFTs in a way that in which customers don't even know that that's an NFT. It has all of the benefits of it, but with all of the complexity abstracted. And we have ticketing companies and others also piloting on how to transform that industry through the use of NFTs. That's great. Uh, Vidor, when you think about uh, compression and the use cases it opens up, right? It's not so much about, you know, one person having a million NFTs themselves. It's a million people or 10 million people or 20 or 100 or a billion having at least one NFT. So from your perspective of Soulflare on the wallet side, how do you think about uh, uh, a billion people having an NFT and trying to do a bunch of things with it in your platform? Yeah, thanks, Ash. Well, there's a few things to unpack here. From a wallet perspective, we think that it is really important for wallets to not uh, depend on some third-party APIs or some proprietary technology because all of us here are, are working uh, under the assumption that Solana is a distributed ledger that will always be online. And the way that we communicate with this distributed ledger is through RPCs. So we, we firmly believe that all of this additional technology that's being built should be built uh, within the, those RPCs. Just to like clear it up, so we don't call some third-party API that might be like hosted on Amazon or something. We uh, let the users choose uh, their RPC endpoints. And these RPC endpoints return, a, in most cases, a truthful state of what the ledger says. And I think like com compressed NFTs are actually a revolutionary thing because why would you need to allocate uh, so much space on the blockchain? when you can just like provide a proof that's aggregated into like few bytes, 34 whatever bytes of data that you as a client can prove. So you can basically prove the ownership of your existence totally offline. So we might as well call this like a, what, layer two for NFTs on top of Solana that uh, lets us mint billions of NFTs. Another thing is that uh, we've heard some uh, great solutions from Canon about how they manage minting uh, NFTs for their partners their, and their games. This obviously needs to be like a very 
stage-by-stage -stage process. For example, you cannot expect a game that wants to onboard with these this type of interoperable assets to jump in and like write, start crafting Solana transactions. Sometimes it is important to give them an API, a key, some something, some infrastructure, some interfaces that they're used to uh, interfacing with and let them build on that. The good thing is that all of this data would be put on a blockchain or or it will be in the form of uh, compressed NFTs. And us, uh, as software, we really have the best interest for our users to display all of their assets, all of the assets that the user owns, either them being directly on the blockchain or in the form uh, of compressed NFTs. Uh, if you want to unwrap that NFT, uncompress that NFT, uh, then it will uh, start living as a separate NFT on the blockchain and you would be able to list it, send it, move it, like do, do whatever you want with it. Uh, just maybe want to stress out one more point and that is uh, the verifiability that you actually own this asset. And the great thing in like uh, an architecture decision that like Metaplex did here uh, and Solana Labs uh, with uh, concurrent Merkle trees is that all of this compressed NFT technology is built on top of existing RPCs on top of existing Solana infrastructure, meaning that it's easy for uh, developers to plug in, very easy for developers to implement, and uh, there are some like, few uh, very cool RPC providers as uh, RPC pools, Triton, that are already working on uh, implementing this. So ultimately, our implementation as a wallet boils down to implementing the new methods for obtaining these compressed NFTs and displaying them with other uh, NFTs in our wallets. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I definitely want to keep talking about, Kanan, how you've actually approached your business model as it related to cost and, you know, how you think about kind of compression as like an additive to that. Sure. Um, I can yeah. speak to, we've actually been doing internal compression of NFTs on Solana for quite some time. Um, I think where we are most excited to work with Metaplex and, and others on this compression standard is seeing it adopted ecosystem-wide will allow compression to mean more than just, you know, to the end developer, but the whole ecosystem, right? All the people looking on soul scan and in wallets and on marketplaces, kind of compression there. Um, speaking to something I said earlier about uh, use cases for NFTs in game, when you're paying a dollar for NFT or 30 cents or anything above one cent, really, um, you get into the territory of this cost cannot scale to all of my players. As, as we've seen some direction from Apple with NFTs on mobile and being able to be sold via IAPs, we are now reaching worldwide and massive distribution of NFTs and games. And so as that applied to Stardust, we took a holistic view and said, we need a way to give NFTs to the masses. Right, far above minting quickly, but you know, minting at scale. And so compression really allows us to do that. It allows us to provide more products to our customers in how we offer value to them for all of their players, not just the few that can afford NFTs, and, and really just interact with more of the ecosystem that we could not before. Yeah, that's great. Um, just as we finish up here, uh, I kind of want to bring it home. This should just be out of the box. We shouldn't be talking about this next time we talk in terms of a compressed asset versus an uncompressed asset. It is just enabling minting at scale. Vidor, do you have anything yeah, to add? Just wanted to add Soulflare, first wallet to fully support compressed yes. NFTs. We're going to start onboarding developers. 
uh, in the following days. So just reach out. If you have interest in the technology, we would like to onboard as many and obviously uh, start minting NFTs at scale. Let's do it. All right. Thank you very much. Appreciate yeah. it.